Hi and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon and I'm really excited about today's episode. I'm joined by the latest member of our Sepad team, Ruba Ali Al Hassani. Ruba is a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Politics, Philosophy and Religion, my department. She's joined us very recently and I'm absolutely delighted that she's uh, that she's chosen to to join our team. Ruba is doing some wonderful work, which is interdisciplinary. She uses a range of different methodologies in the study of state-society relations in Iraq and beyond, aiming to center and amplify voices on the ground in public discourse, analysis, and policy. She does a lot of work on the sociology of law, transitional justice, crime, social control, and social movements. She has done a great deal of work on the region, um, writing for uh, a number of different outlets, including Inside Arabia, The New Arab. She was recently interviewed by Al Jazeera. She was a non-resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy and is doing um, some amazing general work with uh, the, the Canadian Association for Muslim Women in Law. Recently, she had a fantastic article published in the Journal of Intervention and State Building titled Storytelling, Restorative Approaches to Post-2003 Iraq Peacebuilding in a special issue that was edited by a previous guest on this podcast, Shamiran Marco. And I'm absolutely delighted that Ruba is joining us today to talk about all things Ruba and her work. So Ruba, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, that was perhaps the longest introduction that I've done to one of these things, but I thought that it was uh, it was necessary given the amazing stuff that you're doing and the the different range of, of things that you're you're doing both intellectually and uh, and and more broadly in the in the community. So, I guess first things first. What got you interested in, in going into the academy and looking at law and the sociology of law and the state and, I guess, Iraq? That's a, a loaded question <laughs> for, some pe- for someone like me. I've come a long way. I have had quite the journey, uh, pardon the cliche, where <laughs> I began with psychology and sociology for my uh, bachelor's and I found my way through criminology, through another graduate degree in law, and now doing my PhD in law. So I've begun with something as um, general as psychology is, regardless of cultural context, and arrived at um, socio-legal doctoral experience that focuses on Iraq. Mind you, I have focused on Iraq in my previous degree, for my LLM, I did write about Saddam Hussein's trial. So as an Iraqi, Iraq has been on my mind for quite some time. And um, I've decided that all my educational degrees um, help me find a place in this world, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to adhere to a particular discipline, that we can create our own niche and, um, and feel comfortable in it. Even if, you know, there are some purists out there, and I don't blame them for being purists, but it's okay to find an interdisciplinary position uh, to view things differently. Yeah, um, that's, that's really interesting. If you were to 
to sort of define what it is that you do then, I, I've seen you describe it as sociology of law uh, in places. Is that what you would say you are you are doing? Sometimes I am. It depends on what I am exploring. Okay. Um, I will want to explore it from various angles. So I recently worked on a project about gender uh, in the Iraq protests. And it was my first time working deeply with gender theory. And so at first it was a little intimidating, but it was fun. It was so much fun doing it. I love a challenge. And I wrote about, you know, expression um, in the protest movement, whether it related to gender or not. And so for that particular project, I did something different from legal sociology. There was certainly some sociology. Mm -hmm. Um, Sociology of emotion has been of great interest to me over the past couple of years, and I would like to use it more often. Because we we all are, after all, human beings with emotions. And that does not make us irrational in any way. If anything, it helps us understand ourselves more. So depending on the project, some projects I am more of a legal sociologist, and other projects I am more of a simple, you know, like sociologist um, with um, a psychology lens, so a micro-sociologist, I guess. And in other areas, my political side will emerge and do things differently. So I guess the interdisciplinary aspect allows me to be creative and inventive every with every project I take on and put on a different hat. Excellent. That sounds like a good way of, of looking at the world, I think. Yes, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, challenging. <laughs> challenging and... Um, yeah. It's challenging indeed. It's a lot of work because I need to catch up with publications in more than one field. Um, which is a very daunting feeling, I must admit. But, you know, no one has their work figured out perfectly. So this is how I try to be kind to myself. <laughs> sure. So, Ruba, you're, you're fundamentally in pol- interested in political questions, though, I guess. I mean, these are... Yes. These are all questions about about the ordering of, of, of life. So I wonder... Uh, the the question might be phrased along the lines of why didn't you go into uh, into the study of politics? Why why did you choose to go down first psychology and then sociology slash law? That's a very very fair question. <laughs> um, it's I not loaded, I promise you. <laughs> it's a fair question because I have always been a political person uh, since a young age. Um, I will need to pause and reflect on the question. (laughs) That's okay. Take your time. I think life decides to take you a certain way. In my undergraduate, I did psychology, and I was not planning on sociology initially, but I was introduced to it, and I really loved it. And my uh, one of my professors in sociology recommended me to criminology, and at the time I wasn't sure. But he said, you're doing so well in those courses. I really want you to apply to this rather competitive program. It was one of the first at UFT, University of Toronto. And he said, I would really like to write you a letter of reference and encourage you to go down this road because you're really good at it. So I applied and he recommended me. And 
I ended up in this competitive program, um, and I'm very grateful for his support. And it was an enjoyable experience, and I always want to tap back into that knowledge that I have. I've moved on to sociology, and sociology of law touches so much on what I have learned from criminology. There's a, there yeah. are so many parallels. They speak to each other. So I'm happy for that. But there are times when I do, you know, follow Iraq news, and I want to discuss the criminalization of identities, of um, of drug use, you know, criminalizing ad- addiction, which should be treated differently, um, with greater compassion. And so the criminal is connected to the political, and to the legal, and to the personal, and to the social. And so when I ended up in law, it may not be politics, but I have been touching on politics and everything I have been doing. Uh, so it, your question is fair. In my um, criminology degree, I examined torture in Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib. So there's a lot of politics in that. Um, there in is, yeah. LLM, you know, I also studied Saddam Hussein. Could you be any more political <laughs> of a political figure than that? And in my dissertation, now with the PhD, I'm examining state sovereignty. So again, politics finds its way. Even if you can still study many political things without being in politics, because the personal is political. Yeah. The legal is political, so you can still examine it, but from different angles. Of course. Ruba, you mentioned that you were a political and you've been political from a, from a, an early age. Do you remember yes. that, that instant when you, when you started getting interested in politics or, or you were told that you were getting interested in politics, depending on quite how early that was? Another very interesting question. <laughs> I did not prepare myself for this. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's 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 fun. I like your questions. Um, one of my earliest memories as a child with politics was the image of Tiananmen Square on TV, mm-hmm. and the man in front of the tank. Yeah. And I don't think I sub- I consciously thought about it for years, but I, in hindsight now, I think that image stayed in my mind. And something about it means a lot to me. <clears throat> and I grew up in the Middle East, um, in the United Arab Emirates. And so to be an Arab in the 80s means something, you know, there's the Lebanese civil war going on, the Iraq-Iran war going on. Yeah. Um, there was so much taking place. And and then the Gulf War, um, the invasion of Kuwait. So it's hard to be an Arab in the region, or not even Arab, just to be of, from that part of the world, to not have a political element in you sounds questionable (laughs) (laughs) right okay it's I think something about all that was ingrained in me and so when I moved to Canada 
And in high school, I was very aware of what was happening in Iraq by that point, the sanctions, um, and so much more. And so I got involved in protests, and I got involved in Model UN, which I loved so much. I really enjoyed that. I remember trying it once in high school, uh, and when I joined university, I became one of those people who organized Model UN for high school students. Amazing. And I enjoyed that for four years, working with a wonderful team that I recently, you know, remembered. And I'm still in touch with a couple of them. And that was such a wonderful learning experience um, to learn more about the political, the international. And I think this has stayed with me. And I, you know, being an Iraqi, I always connect. Even though I never lived in Iraq, I was not born in Iraq, but I still have a strong sense of identity and maybe a sense of guilt that I was born into privilege outside Iraq, not, you know, in Iraq during the war, mm-hmm. not suffering through sanctions. And this guilt, I don't want to say it has weighed me down, rather it has been motivating me to do more and better for people in Iraq, whatever I can. You sure. Know, I do, I buy no means would I ever, ever describe myself as someone who wants to save others. That's too self-centered. But I think I want to do my part in this world as a human being. And I think it provides us with a sense of meaning to want to help others, to do whatever we can. And I think academia is a wonderful place to do this. You know, We can reshape knowledge. We can figure knowledge about parts of the world that is seen so negatively and with such great bias. And as you explained in the introduction, I really want to center the voices of people in Iraq in my work. As Arundhati Roy once said, you know, there's no such thing as the voiceless. There is, uh, I don't remember it verbatim, but um, (laughs) those who are uh, consciously or intentionally overlooked or unheard. Yeah, Uh, it's a wonderful quote as well. I love it. If only I remembered it verbatim. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can go back and edit it in, perhaps. Although sure. now I've said that, I think we'll leave it out just to um, not not spoil the illusion. Uh, but Ruba, I, I must say, you you do um, you do such a good job of of building on that philosophy of of trying to dispel some of the the dangerous demonizing, otherizing. Yes. Um, racial, xenophobic, um, hate-filled narratives in, in your work, both the, the, the academic stuff, but also the, um, the work that you did for, uh, for the Tahrir Institute, um, which is some, there's some wonderful stuff there on, on free speech, on protests and sovereignty and stuff on elections, which perhaps we can touch on in a little bit, but it's the, um, it, it's the recent article that I'd like to, to turn to briefly, if I may, this, this wonderful piece in, in um, Shamiran's special issue in the Journal of Intervention and State Building titled Storytelling, Restorative Approaches to Post-2003 Iraq Peace Building. Yes. Uh, because I think this is a wonderful piece. It's really fascinating. Um, and it's, it's well worth your time for, for, for people who've not read it. But it's it's got this this really interesting 
conceptual approach, I guess, on storytelling. So yes. tell us a little bit about, about what's going on in this article, please. What are you trying to do and why is the idea of, of storytelling so, not just central to the article, but so important generally? This is a paper that I really enjoyed working on. Um, storytelling is part of who we are as human beings. We are storytelling animals, as uh, a book title uh, by Gottschall says. Um, and, you know, when it comes to peace building and reconciling between any two parties out there, um, individuals, groups, etc. I think we all know how to speak and how to write, but we don't know how to listen to each other. Um, and I think this is something that manifests in various aspects of our lives, that we all need to learn to listen to each other better and a context where this is um, especially important is conflict. And uh, or maybe not conflict, post-conflict. And we want everyone to feel heard. So it goes to back to what I just said previously with the quote that I, you know, <laughs> the Aaron Zetti quote. Um, everyone wants to feel heard. And this is where they can feel remotely at peace. And storytelling does that. And so when we bring together members of a pluralistic society and where they at least feel like they're hearing each other, listening to each other, they can understand each other better. And so the othering process can be um, broken uh, down and we can promote transformative justice, not just transitional justice, restorative justice that focuses more on restoring connections and relations and not just punishing. Of course, there are, you know, Iraq is one of many societies where penal justice is still the way people prefer. prefer. They want justice is a word that has so many subjective meanings connected to it. Mm. And so if I talk to someone in Iraq, will say, I want justice. It might mean something different to them than to me. And so I need to engage in storytelling with them. A story is not a story without a, an audience, without a listener. So we really need to connect on that level and understand what justice means for different people. Maybe it means reparations. Mm -hmm. Maybe it means... Um, you know, public trials, maybe it means dialogue. And I think in all cases, it needs dialogue um, that could be arranged one way or another. So that's at the core of this paper. And um, in Iraq, because there are different notions of justice as anywhere else, a hybrid model might be best. Um, one that brings together different types of justice, penal and restorative, and blend them in a way that centers and addresses the people's needs and demands. Rather than address things from the top down, we would explore things from the bottom up and organize them that way. Interesting. Can I... 
ask for a reflection slightly, and if this is a little bit too philosophical, I apologize. <laughs> okay. But what is it about the idea of, of telling a story that is that is more influential in in getting people to listen and to engage with than hearing I don't know, a speech or testimony, do you think? Well speech speeches and testimonies are also stories in a way. We tell mm-hmm. stories through them. Sure. We tell we tell stories through music, through yep. art. Um various practices um so your question is what is it about storytelling yes Uh, setting up that deliberate idea of 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 recounting a particular story and what it means um yeah i mean why is it why is it so so powerful so so important so successful whereas other other approaches to conveying information perhaps might not be quite as effective because stories are engaging and, you know, of course there are, by paper it uh, does address the fact that there are destructive and constructive stories, so I am mindful of that. For example, when people engage in hate speech, um, in the othering process, using derogatory language, that's destructive storytelling. Mm-hmm. So I, I do not want to fall into the trap of romanticizing storytelling. Um, but constructive storytelling can be a powerful thing and it matters because if you try to think back to your childhood you must have engaged in so much storytelling and that's part of how we form ourselves the self is formed through play Yeah. and during play we create these characters you know i am this character you are that and this is what the game will be so we already set up our characters and we set up the plot line before Mm -hmm. we begin playing and that really is the epitome of what it means to be a storyteller you outline it and then you say okay let's start playing you know and you do that and then at bedtime you listen to stories even when you watch tv those are stories, and it helps us identify ourselves. We form our characters, our personalities through it. And when we do engage with fiction, we can learn to empathize more. And that's something I do address in the paper, um, that storytelling, when done positively and constructively, it helps us empathize with the person that we may have otherized in the past when we know their perspective and where they're coming from, what their background is. Even if we're unhappy with something they said or did, at least we can have a background and have a context and know how to address things better. Yeah, sure. I think that's really interesting and really important. The ability to to, to create empathy and and break down some of the things that would prevent the formation of that empathy. Yes. Mm. And we live in a world where we need more empathy. Certainly. Yeah, certainly agree with you on that one. Ruba, I can delve into this article for a lot longer, but I'm conscious of time and I want to talk to you a little bit about some of your more recent um, work, which I realise isn't out yet, but 
the the piece yeah. that you were talking about with the um, with the gender focus and the the work that you've been doing on the the 2019 protests I wonder if you can just share some of your your broader reflections please um, we can point to, to where people can find this in the in the show notes but I think given everything that's happening in Iraq right now um, having without wanting to, to look into a crystal ball, I think having more of a, a critical engagement on the past, goodness, two years, from different perspectives, particularly those that that um, that help to bring marginalised voices to the fore, I think is really important. So if you could just share some of the some of the things you've been doing, please. That would be really interesting for, for people, I'm sure. Yes. Um, so... My forthcoming publication is a chapter in a Palgrave handbook um, on gender, uh, social movements, and communication. And my uh, chapter explored the question of whether the Iraq protests were feminist in nature, um, or whether you know there's anything that the protest movement has done for women in Iraq. And I do analyze chants, hashtags, slogans, mm -hmm. and examples um, that were experienced during the protest movement. And by when I say were experienced, not by myself, but people on the ground. And I do rely on social media due to the distance. And um, the I rely on bell hooks uh, gender theory and how patriarchy is a system, it's a stru social structure that aims to isolate men from women and treat them differently, when in fact men and women have so much in common in their own struggles, and especially, um, you know, against oppressive regimes, against uh, corruption, political corruption, and I do explore NGOization's role in Iraq in this regard where it individualizes gender struggles. And I bring this all together to discuss how the protest movement have brought men and women together to fight systemic problems such as sectarianism, corruption, um, the consociational system, and while the protest movement was not necessarily feminist, it did address many uh, gender issues and it did make women feel comfortable in public spaces for the first time in a very long time. There were many testimonies from women uh, activists who went to the protest squares and returned and said, wow, no one harassed me. No one treat, mistreated me. If anything, I felt more than welcome and I felt like an equal. And for the first time, we were seeing men, in this case, young men, inviting women to not only participate, but to lead them. And this is something new um, in Iraq and many parts of the region where men are actually asking women to lead them in protest, to lead them in revolution. Mm -hmm. And this is such a powerful thing to see. And the protest movement had created the sense of solidarity that we have not seen in a long time. Iraq has been through 
you know, <laughs> I don't know how to say this without undermining things, um, <laughs> through a very, very difficult number of decades. Yeah. Uh, and conflict that is, you know, consistent and ongoing aims to divide people. And this protest movement has shown us that the people do not want to be divided. They want to come together and address the real problem, which is the political system that aims to divide them to thrive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, using chants and slogans for the movement and art. I I had so much fun exploring the art from the movement. And there are so many... You know, art is such a powerful way of storytelling and even chants and slogans, even hashtags, you know, we we tend to undermine them on social media, we tend to trivialize them, but hashtags can be very powerful uh, when used in the right context and with the right words. Of course, and so yeah. This is a summary of what the project is. Amazing. And where and when can people read this? Um, uh, it will be a Palgrave handbook, and it should be published uh, by before the end of the year. That's my understanding. Amazing. I guess we can put some more information in the show notes. Um, yes. With a steer to where people can can get it from, but it's it's all really really exciting stuff. And um, I should just say, Ruba, we've been talking for a while, but before we go. I must just say it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today and and working with you over the past um, few weeks, months since you joined Zepad. It's it's an absolute delight having you on board and your your treatment of, of all these complex issues is is really um, really inspiring and and it gives us all a great deal of food for thought. So thank you, thank you. for it's a it's a privilege working with you. Well, you're very kind to say, but um, thank you for the podcast and thank you for being you and doing all of the wonderful stuff that you're doing. It really is, um, really is great having all these opportunities to to work with you. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure, Rupa. Thank you so much. And um, everyone, thank you for listening. Keep an eye out for all the wonderful things that that Rupa's doing. There's a lot in the pipeline and and it's all going to be really wonderful stuff. A huge thank you to Ruba for her time just now. You can find her on Twitter at Ruba Al Hassani. That's at Ruba Al Hassani. And uh, do give her a follow. She's sharing some really fascinating observations on, uh, on all things Iraq. Also, a huge thank you to you for listening. As always, please do like, share, subscribe, and do all the things that everyone else asks you to do. Somehow they help us, but it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't ask you to do it. So. Thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourselves. Until next time.